Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for September 16th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we hear about the critical role data plays in making sound economic decisions on the farm. We talk about the history of grape breeding in Arkansas and how it led to the development of the wildly popular cotton candy grape. We also learn about four livestock diseases that Arkansas agriculture experts are keeping a close eye on. First, Wes Long with Ultimate Ag Consulting shares how data is being leveraged on farms to make agronomic decisions that save time and money. He also offers some advice on how any grower can start working with data on the farm. Wes, thank you so much for uh, joining me today on the Arkansas AgCast. You know, we ran into each other the other day in Jefferson County and got to talking about this concept of of data's influence on agronomic decision-making. Do you remember that? Absolutely. Yeah. And and we talked about, you really got my attention with this example that you gave me. So uh, we'll talk more about that here in a minute, but it just, I really wanted to invite you on the podcast to, to talk about some of the ways that you're making decisions for your clients. So your business is Ultimate Ag Consulting. Uh, and, uh, you know, I really want to talk about some of the, uh, some of the decisions, you know, that you're helping your farmers make. Can we do that today? Sure. All right. Good. Well, let's, let's just start off with a pretty basic approach to, to this question. And, and, and so it's pretty broad, but we'll narrow down. How is data influencing uh, agronomic decisions on the farm in 2021? Well, farming is becoming a business of efficiency. Um, in the older days, you know, with reduced inputs, you could go make a crop and pay the bank back. Well, now to be profitable, you have to find efficiencies in your operations because cost of production is high. Mm-hmm. So the way I look at data is data is not a crescent wrench. It won't fit everywhere. <laughs> data is like a snap-on uh, mechanic set. Every little tool has its place. But when you have them together and you use it, there's a lot that you can accomplish with it. And smaller farmers, you know, everybody thinks data's got to be this big farm. Actually, a smaller farmer could probably benefit more because he can find inefficiencies in his operation. So some of the things that, you know, and you can ease into it, but fertility management has probably been the number one thing that that most uh i read a story about purdue produced a thing the other day that about 98 percent of data management has been focused around fertility Mm -hmm. Uh, but we have water management we have seed placement uh, applications and computer programs to help us put the right seed on the right soil type Um, you know it's also called genetics by environment looking at microclimates looking at your cecs of your soil how well it drains and what variety is going to perform the best on that soil. Mm-hmm. And just by doing that, without changing anything, sometimes we can increase our yield 10 to 15% by just putting the right variety on the right soil type with changing nothing else in our operation. So imagine adding one little like little piece of that, adding 10 to 15% extra yield without changing anything else. So if we can do these little niches at 3 to 5, 10, 15%, look how efficient we can be. Yeah, I mean, in the like you said, you, well, you talked about microenvironments, but sometimes these are almost micro tweaks that you're making, um, which sort of challenges what I would call traditional thinking. Um, you know, we we all know that uh, farmers sometimes like to do things the way their dads or grandfathers did it, and and absolutely, uh, you know, this is a little bit of a change from that uh, sometimes, especially when you're talking about different varieties of soybeans or corn across a across a, a farm. Well, and that's that, and that's the thing too, you know. Like a lot of people, well, that's the way Daddy did it. Well, your Daddy did it that way because it worked for him. Mm-hmm. Things have changed now. Our climate has changed. Our equipment has changed. Planting windows has changed. So, not all change is bad. Some change is good. And to really maximize your profits, you kind of got to be, you know, want to accept a little change and and try to make your farm better. Like my good farmers are always asking, you know, what can we do better? What did we do wrong? Yeah. And there's a lot of data out there. We have planters that can variable rate. We have yield monitors. We have all kinds of tools that are available to us. And a lot of this equipment we have now has it on there. So mm-hmm. let's take a little time and use this data to 
to be more profitable in your operation. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, but it gets complicated too, right? You and I were 100, 100%. And you don't have to just go 100% in it. Try a field or two, you know, try small steps to see, is this working for me? And it gives you time to focus on it and not get overwhelmed with it at the beginning. So you don't have to just say, well, I'm doing 100% data-driven decisions now. Ease mm-hmm. into it and see how you like it. And I think once you do that, you are going to like the concept of it. And you're going to enjoy looking at those numbers and say, wow, man, this did work. Yeah. We were sitting, speaking of when we were talking the other day, we were sitting in a presentation that had a couple of farmers from Southeast Arkansas in it. And, I mean, one of those guys was talking about nine software systems across his farm that he's that he's trying to pull in and track together and things like that. I mean, that's really complex. But what you're saying is that you don't have to have something that broad or that all-encompassing to make a difference in your farm. Am I understanding you right? That's right. And uh, I know the gentleman you're talking about, of course, he's got a big operation. And he, and he's been working with data for probably 20 years now. He was one of the first ones. So he's kind of getting more into it. And, you know, like you said, we have these APIs, which is an application program interface that allows apps and programs to talk to each other. And they're getting more, and we're starting to get more software where we can start combining and reducing this down. So, you know, maybe as the first thing is getting your combine calibrated and looking at yield maps. Um, A lot of farmers are doing grid sampling now because we get CSP contracts. Well, we have programs we can overlay that yield map over a variable rate uh, fertility map. Well, are we seeing an improvement where we put the fertilizer out? So it's just small steps to kind of ease into it to see if it's something you want to do and it's beneficial to your operation. Right. So I, I got to tell you, I mean, you're talking about APIs. I mean, you sound like a, somebody from the IT department a little bit. Are we, you, we know that the, we know that the farmer has long been the CEO and the CFO and the COO. Are we, are we looking at a farmer who now maybe takes on the title as CTO chief technical officer too? Absolutely. And you know, really to make that possible, you either have to hire somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in an operation where you have a son or a brother and he wants to take on that responsibility, uh, that, you know, that can help you to make better plans. And a lot of the farms now, you can't just go out there and get on a tractor and say, I'm a farmer. It is so business driven and it is a 12 month a year job. And it it's based on making data driven decisions, ordering chemicals, seed. Uh, all of your inputs early to take advantage of the programs. I mean, these guys are really turning into more like a CEO than they are a tractor driver. And the ones that are successful are, are taking time out of their week to do that. Um, and then once you find these efficiencies, maybe you can save enough money to pay somebody to do this full time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of farmers have done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, and you sort of play that role a little bit, right? Absolutely. You know, we try to, uh, my business partner and I try to work with our farmers to help them make data decisions and collect. And, you know, if we can find them inputs at a better cost or, you know, we call retailers and suppliers and, and say, hey, what do you got? And, you know, if you've got a good program, hey, would you call my farmer and go over it with him? I think he would be a good fit for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, with, uh, you know, we have good relationships with finance companies and ag lenders. If, if they've got a program, same thing. If we hear about it, we'll just reach out to them and say, could you please call my farmer and go over it with him? Mm-hmm. Um, we like to do it that way. That way, the farmer can hear the program from whoever is trying to pitch it to him and not a third party. Right. Uh, but we'll just kind of steer them in that direction, and then they can have those conversations about their finances or, or whatever they want. And a lot of you know farmers want to keep that private, and we understand that. So if we can find something good or positive, we can think of make our farmer more money, you dang right we're going to make a call and steer them in that direction. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thinking of, thinking back on this data piece, I, I'm curious, and, and, and I probably should have asked you this in advance, but I'm curious, are there any instances from thinking about this growing season, and we can go back further if we need to, where data proved you wrong on something or, or, or influenced you to change your mind about a, an approach, you know, agronomically? Yes, uh, Seeing that we're planting crops a little later, you know, used to we'd love to get in the field in March, but because of the weather, we're getting in in late April to May. Uh, and we haven't been a big blanket fungicide because it could be mm-hmm. 25 to $30 an acre by the time you add the plane, depending on what you get. But I think with these 
later crops, what we have seen this year, we saw it with NDVI imagery early in the season mm-hmm. after we made a fungicide application, and now the yield's coming in to where fungicides this year have probably paid for itself more than they have in any other year. Oh, wow. So it's something that we may need to look at protecting the plant because now it's like, well, it don't look bad, but the NDVI image showed that, man, this plant was healthier. And now the yield monitor showing, man, we had a significant yield increase and it more than easily paid for the uh, fungicide application. So using that data to say, all right, instead of looking at it, we've got numbers here that prove that we can pay for this sale plus get a net return on it. So I think in the future, it's something that we're going to have to to look at more. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting concept. And, and, and it really starts to really what all this goes back to, you know, I, I say sometimes that really farming comes down to do your outputs outnumber your inputs. And, and this really, we're, that's where we're getting back to is the input that you're putting in, you know, is it paying back dividends, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the season? Absolutely. Uh, uh, I had a farmer, you know, I was kind of worried like, man, this costs a lot of money, costs a lot of money. He said, look, I don't care if we spend a million dollars an acre, but am I going to get a million and five back? You know, <laughs> yeah, he said, yeah. spend the money we need if you think we're going to get a positive return. You know, we don't need mm-hmm. to waste money, but if we can get a return on it, let's go ahead and put it in the crop. Right. Okay. Speaking of that, speaking of what we're putting into a crop. So you, you sort of shared with me this example of, of ground understanding what kind of pro- the production quality, that's my term, not yours. Uh, the production quality of a piece of ground. So let's let's talk about a forty acre plot of of corn. And and if do you mind to sort of share with me the example, uh, share with me here the example that we were talking about the other day, and the thinking that you guys are putting through it with data. Well, in the Midwest, they're they're actually a little ahead of us, and and they do a better job of us than this. But we've got some ground to where it floods out every year. And it kind of gets down in the bottom, and it's not as productive. But every year, we put high-dollar seed. We put a, a big fertility program on it. Mm-hmm. We put a lot of money in weed control, and then it just never produces very well. So I've suggested taking some of these fields that do that, and we'll break them into two or three different zones or break it out to where it's not as productive. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe let's put a little cheaper seed. Maybe let's not uh, put fertilizer out until we know we're going to get a crop. Maybe let's not spray it until the water gets off of it because we're putting all this money in this low productive area and we're not getting nothing out of it. I mean, we're losing, but we're getting something out of it where we're not making our money back to pay for our inputs. Right. And if and we also have some poor ground. Uh, Dr. Ronnie Helms helps me a lot. Man, he is just an absolute treasure for Arkansas. And he'll mm-hmm. tell you, sometimes you just got poor ground. Quit worrying about it. Quit trying to make 250 bushel corn on ground it's only going to make 180 (laughs) fertilize and manage to 180 and you'll be more profitable it's just it is the way it is so if we know we can we've got some poor ground that's just not going to yield well let's manage for the poor yield yeah let's see if we can find a little bit cheaper seed which we can have variable rate seeding uh there is a company that's going to release a planter probably next year and basically it's got two hoppers on it it's got one for one seed and one for another so if you get into an area that's got not as productive, and this is going to be, it's a company in Minnesota, you can put a cheaper seed. So when you get to that area, it'll shut one bin off and start shuttling the cheaper seed to it. That way you never have to stop in the field. You don't have to break it. You can do it digitally. You don't have to come back and replant it or clean your hoppers out. You can do it at once. And by doing that on some of this poor ground, we can still be profitable. So we're allocate we're actually allocating our resources mm-hmm. in a much better way. And instead of just doing it by like, well, it looks bad, we can actually use data to prove well it is bad. Yeah. So let's quit trying to make something it's not and manage to what it is, and we're still gonna be more profitable in the end while absolutely cutting our input costs too. Wow. Yeah, that's I mean, that is just that is so fascinating to me, especially when you get into the in the uh, implement piece. Um, and how they are adapting to this as well. And it just all goes back to that, that data driven decision-making, you know, um, which is, well, you know, it's, it's just so different than how we've done things in the past. And just the pure concept of seeding a field with two different, you know, two different seeds or two different varieties or whatever that may be, uh, depending on its production history or things like that is just really fascinating. 
and, and we've got options now. You know, in the past, we didn't have as many. Well, now we have so many seed options. There's so many companies that want to do business direct. And by doing that, they're willing to pass the savings on to you because they can make a little bit more money by not having to pay a retailer or a third party. And the farmer can save a little bit of money and everybody wins. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we have options now that we haven't even had, you know, five years ago, uh, things we can do. And, you know, you think about this planner, well, man, how much is that going to cost? And it probably will be very expensive, but mm-hmm. you know, in two or three years, you'd be amazed how you could pay for it for on input savings. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, you, you save 40, $50 an acre on input savings. That goes a long way to paying for, for equipment like this or for more data tr- tools. Yeah. A lot of this stuff is, you know, you've got to be forward looking on some of this stuff, uh, from what I've learned and, and, you know, you've got to be willing to look at, you know, what's the savings out over three, five, 10 years, uh, versus, versus this year and, 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 and be able to look at the opportunity and, and know that you've got a scale too, right? You're not going to reduce your input costs by 25% the first year you start applying no, data on the farm absolutely not you're you're correct and and don't get sticker shop you know look at the price and then go home and put some numbers together and a lot of times you'll say well man when i look at this over three to five years it's really not that expensive yeah instead of just saying oh well it costs all this much up front right right well so to that end i mean what is the biggest obstacle uh, that you've seen or or one of maybe a couple of obstacles that you've seen that are keeping farmers from getting into, uh, you know, s- some of this database decision-making? I think some of it is they're kind of scared to try something new. Um, you know how there's a lot of progressive farmers, but there's also a big group that are just worried it's not going to work. And uh, I'm going to tell you the biggest thing is to have a positive attitude going into it. If you think, okay. well, I'm going to spend this money, it's not going to work. Well, then it's not going to work. But if you have an attitude saying, man, I think this will work and I'm going to do it. And that lets you do everything you can to make sure it's successful. Mm-hmm. Um, second thing is sticker shock. Don't get, you know, bogged down with sticker shock. Look at it as a whole. And then, like I've always said, just start slow. Let's pick a few fields and let's look at data to drive decisions on this field. And then if it works, then you can try a little bit next year. And everybody's always got those few fields on their farms that's not as productive. So let's start there. Let's focus on these fields to see what we can do. And there's all kinds of programs out there that can help us now. Yeah. And a lot of and a lot of these software companies will give you a year or two free trials to let you run some data through it to see if it works. Yeah. So so positive attitude. One hundred percent. Don't have sticker shock. And let's yes. do it in baby steps. Absolutely. I mean, it's just like anything else. You you know, a lot of times when a farmer tries a new variety or company, the company, he doesn't put his entire farm in it. He gives it a field or two, and he said, man, I kind of like this. Next year, it's a little bit more. So just yeah. kind of ease into it like you do your your normal operational procedures. Yeah. It seems to me very, very surmountable. You can you can take this on a little bit at a time. And, like, I, I love your example of, of um, you know, maybe low lower productive ground or something like that where you don't have a lot to lose, per se. Um and and just kind of start seeing what you can learn, and and, and I I think I would add one if I may, and Absolutely. that is that is, hey look, your data may confirm that you're doing the right thing, and that's okay too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean your your data will confirm that hey we're doing everything we could. So what we need to do is uh, maybe on this field put more water sensors in. What if we can save we can go ten days without water instead of watering every seven days? Yeah. Well, just think every three weeks, you just saved a week of water. So you just cut because of energy costs. You just saved uh, maybe through the summer, three waterings. Well, that could be in certain areas up to $25 an acre. Yeah. You That's know, a huge savings. And, and there's all kinds of CSP programs out there and government programs that will pay for water sensors. Uh, because, you know, we probably will run out of water one day if we don't do something about it now. Yeah. Uh, so those that's a baby step thing that's easy to use. There's people that can help you with it. And then maybe the next year you find something else that saves you 10 to 15 bucks an acre. Well, now that field that's breaking you is either breaking even or is a little profitable just from some small baby steps and using data to make decisions instead of intuition. Yeah. Well, we were, so I was with Dr. Chris Henry at the Rice Research Station down at Stuttgart. Um, I don't know. It's been a month or so ago. And he took me out to show me some corn 
and he had put water sensors in half the field and and uh, watered on a calendar uh, on the other half of the field. And you know, I'm not a farmer, but I've been around this business for more than a decade or so. And and so, I you know, he asked me. He's like, which you know, which is which? You know, he had signs and covered them up. Which is which? Honestly, I couldn't tell the difference. And like you're talking about, 25 percent of the irrigation rate using the soil moisture sensors that that he was watering 75 percent more probably on the calendar than he was on on the on the other side on the sensor side and my mind was blown like i couldn't tell the difference standing there looking at it and i bet you when he harvested it there won't be a bushel difference between it um we we probably are watering too much because we're like well it's every monday let's turn the water on yeah yeah well if we do it with with technology like i said we we can save a lot of water and it's not just saving groundwater it's also saving energy and we all know energy costs are going up, whether it's electricity or fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. have not went down in the last year and don't look like they will. Um, electricity in the United States, the rates could double over the next 10 years. Yeah. Because there's going to be such a demand on the grid with everything going electric. Well, mm-hmm. it's got to be produced somewhere. Um, so yeah. that's another thing. It, energy is a kind of, hey, moving target with farmers. One year it's a, very expensive. The next year is not as bad. But it's something that we need to manage for. Mm-hmm. We need to be managing our energy costs because they're more than likely not going to decrease moving forward. And be thinking about that now, not when you have to. Absolutely, because then you're prepared for it to say, well, you know, I've I, I reduced my water on these fields. We're, we're saving a tremendous amount of energy in groundwater. Yeah, for sure. Well, Wes, man, what a fun conversation. I appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Uh, well, you know, thank you, man. I appreciate you. We appreciate what Farm Bureau does for, for Arkansas farmers, uh, not just row crop farmers, but ranchers also. You're a great voice, and uh, we we just couldn't make it without industry support. Our, our farmers really do appreciate the things that you provide for them. Well, that's awesome. So, Wes Long, again, with uh, Ultimate Ag Consulting, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the AgCast, and we'll we'll catch up with you soon, buddy. No problem. Thank you. Next, Arkansas Farm Bureau's Dr. Jessica Richard tells us about four deadly animal diseases that can pose a threat to Arkansas livestock. Only one has currently been detected in the state, but she says the others bear watching. That's great. All right. Hello. I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Richard, our resident... Economist, uh, I guess. Yes, economist, beef cattle expert, all of the above. Dairy and equine. Yes, all of that. Mm -hmm. So what you're here to talk about today is uh, some potential danger out there. Tell me about that. Yeah, we like to we like to uh, wave the amber flag when needed. Yes. So um, I guess I kind of, you know, talked to you a little bit as some of this was going on. But we've got one, two, three, possibly four diseases that the Commodities and Regulatory Affairs um, Department here at Arkansas Farm Bureau is monitoring. Okay, so... That sounds bad, but not all of these are here, right? Some right, just right. are let's, out there. Could before we here. wave that amber flag yeah. a little bit too hard, let's like address the facts. Sure. One of these diseases is here. Okay. And that is? Eastern equine encephalitis okay. virus. Triple E, E-E-E-V. Mm-hmm. There are nicknames for this, but yes. triple E is here. Okay. And um, how, where has that been uh, registered, encountered, seen, what part of the state? Uh... Sure. So right now we have two places, two premises, well, three premises, two places. Uh, we can get into that a little bit. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned, there's four disease we're monitoring. Yes. The one that is physically here, there have been three positive cases for. That was in Pulaski County Okay. and Mountain View area. Okay. And so... And that's an equine disease. I mean, I know I said yes. that in the name of the disease, but horses, mules, donkeys, they can all get this. Okay. So what is being done to make sure this isn't a larger outbreak? What kind of precautions are taking? What steps? Right. So if you saw on Twitter last week, uh, we addressed the press release that was put out by the Department of Ag. Mm-hmm. This is their wheelhouse. Disease outbreak management is absolutely what they are there to manage. So what's being done is quarantines. Um, a lot of education, a lot of signage at any equine type events. Uh, this, not this past weekend, was it this past weekend? Uh, no, no, no. It was the weekend, weekend before, before that, the state horse show right. and the 
Clinton chuck wagon races were two very, very, very large equine events in the state. So at those two events, the leadership was very involved in taking all precautions such as spraying for mosquitoes, making sure horse owners knew where to get vaccines. Every, everything in the book regarding managing this disease was done and was communicated. And Patrick Fisk did a, um, an interview, a media spot, and so did Secretary Ward. You know, they did an excellent job, you know, bringing a tone of, of uh, you know, like sure. concern, but just gentle awareness that, hey, we've got something here. Nothing to panic about. But Nothing we're, to panic about, but be aware it. and keep yeah. an eye out. Now, Patrick Fisk is... The Livestock and Poultry Director Commission, okay. Commission Director. Um, he's got a long title. Is there anything, if you're, if, if you're out there and you're a horse owner or, or any of those other animals, what do you need to know? What, what should you do personally? You should personally find someone. If you find a human resource, such as myself, um, the Livestock and Poultry Commission, if you need more information. But if you just Google triple EV, you can see um, signs and symptoms and precautions. One of the things that, uh, you know, the Department of Ag encourages is work with your local vet. Yeah. Okay. Makes you know, sense. I'm not a vet and I'm an right. economist, but I can oh. help direct you to someone that can help you look for signs and Excellent. symptoms and potential threats. Okay. So that's the one that's here. Uh, tell me a little bit about the other ones that are not here, but are a threat. Sure. The, I have to be careful how I talk and think about this because there are three that are being monitored. But I can't speak into the level of monitoring because some of it I just frankly don't know. And the other stuff is more, we're monitoring, but no one needs to really know the details of what that sounds like because it's it's quite frankly a reduced threat. So I'll, sure. I'll name them quickly. Um, atypical BSE is in Brazil. Okay. And so that is not the quote unquote mad cow disease consumers were worried about in this country years and years and years ago. This is a, it's a very... How do I say this? Is it different because it's not a public health threat the yeah. way the way people typically think about that disease? But more than anything, it could actually be a market opportunity if but, certain things go a certain way. I, I was going to say that is obviously a long way. A uh, long way away. Distance-wise, a long way. Yes. That's in Brazil, but that could have an impact in, in markets in some way, shape, or form. Yes. So the thing to understand there is China buys a lot of beef, mm-hmm. especially right now. Okay, well, where do they get this beef? Brazil is like the number one top exporter to China as an importer. So when they when they had to look at the regulations and hit pause on imports, mm-hmm. that that created a tension in the global market for a spot on beef. And the way that could develop is it could have turned into a situation where the U.S. becomes a good alternative for beef imports to China. Okay, interesting. All right, so that's obviously not one of the more immediate threats. Or right, definitely not super immediate. What are the others that you're... And if anything, it's an opportunity. Sure. That's, that's the like caution. Potential opportunity. Of course, we're watching the disease, yeah. of course we are, but we're pretty prepared to deal with BSE. What's, uh, what are the, the other uh, others that you mentioned that may not be a huge right. direct threat right now, but they're... So, um, if you are, if you are a pork producer out there, uh, you know, the scary word that is ASF that disease, African swine fever has been, uh, making its way through China. Um, they have been dealing with that and unfortunately depopulating some hogs. Um, we're very aware of that, but it's not, it's not a, it's not a big bright light in the American domestic ag, you know, industry because it's so far away we don't think of it as a, as a likely place for the U.S. to contract ASF from. Sure. But um, it's named for Africa because it was found there. Um, but it is it has been in Europe. You know, it kind of started in the southeast and kind of graduated to the northwest. And um, it is currently in the Dominican Republic. Okay. That's, kinda, that's getting a little Positive closer. cases. There okay. are positive cases of ASF in the Dominican Republic. Okay. Um, so that is so again not here yet but no. circling around kind of a potential something to watch which is what the what it is something to doing. watch and there is potential threat there mm-hmm. but um you know kind of rest assured if farm bureau ha- we have our eyes on it very much sure. you know we're, we're in the we're in the middle of the conversation with keeping our and eyes if, on and it and if anything pops we'll be letting people know sharing Absolutely. whatever is, is available which is a good plug for call to action because yes. if you're on those if you're on those lists that might be a first line of defense for how you hear about it 
And how do you sign up for the call to action? The call to action form actually lives on RFB.com. If you go in the public policy section and you go and you click under the issue alert drop uh, down, yeah. that drop down menu that comes up, yep, there's an online form there and you enter your information. And what that does is let you get in under into a list and that list will be issue specific. So if you're a pork producer and you identify yourself as interested in pork issues, you will get a text message should we ever need to send one okay. as an update on what might be going on with ASF. Excellent. Thank you. And now let's get to the drum roll, please. The last of the uh, possible diseases. Sure. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Drum roll. That's lurking. Sure. Uh, Venezuelan equine encephalitis is the fourth animal disease that we're monitoring. And this is only present in Mexico right now. Okay. I say only. I don't know if it's anywhere else in the world. I don't know if anyone else knows that. But in Mexico, there are positive cases of VEE. Okay. So what that means for the United States is that our foreign animal disease specialists in D.C., they, they are on the watch for that. They okay. are the alert system for that, and we're monitoring it because it's so close to the border. Yeah, very close. So in Arkansas, right now we, cer we certainly don't have a lot to worry about because there is a vaccine for it, and its immediate threat is in Texas, not Arkansas. Okay. It just so happens as the equine director here, I know that a lot of equine swap locations with Texas, we buy horses from them, we send them horses. We beat them in football. We, we beat them in football, go yeah. hogs. We, um, we also compete with our equine down in Texas. So it's something we watch because it's precautionary and it's also a terrible disease. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a neurological disease. So those are the four concerns. Is there anything else out there? I mean, not, not that we need anything else, but is there anything else out there anyone should be looking out for right now in the animal ag industry? I, I, we're watching another plant fire that happened in the uh, rendering side That's of right. a JBS plant. But the last I read, which was yesterday, yesterday evening, I saw that... Um, you know, the plant plans to go back online. I don't know what that looks like or when that looks like. Um, but my understanding was that the fire was under control and it was in the rendering side, which if you're a processor or you know a thing or two about beef processing, is not the kill floor. Okay. Is not the processing floor. Yes. All right. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for that update. And again, uh, you can go on our website for issues updates. It's uh, on ARFP.com under the uh, drop-down for public policy. Right. And uh, you sign up there, and you can choose the industries that you're interested in, and they will send you text updates when when there's something to be alerted about. Right. And as always, uh, Jessica Richard, I have jessica.richard at arfb.com is my email. Um, you can get a hold of my cell phone if you have my card or contact your president. And CRA in general and, and all these good teams in the different departments at Farm Bureau are ready to help you find information or work through some of these issues. That's what we're here for. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Richard. No problem. Thank you, Rob. Finally, Jason Brown talks to distinguished University of Arkansas professor and horticulturist Dr. John Clark about the history of grape breeding in the state, including how one Arkansas variety earned recognition as apparent to the popular cotton candy grape. Okay, Dr. Clark, great to have you back on the Arkansas AgCast. My goodness, uh, I've, I've heard some really good things about our last conversation. And uh, offline, you started mentioning to me uh, the great breeding program at the university. And, uh, I, oh, my goodness, I think we've talked probably close to two hours about this, just, just back and forth on the phone. And so I just wanted to, uh, to invite you back on. And let's talk a little bit about the grape breeding program. Are you up for it? Sure. Jason, glad to share about Arkansas grape breeding. Awesome. All right. Well, the first question I got is pretty basic. Um, can you tell me, you know, you, you spent over 40 years here at the university, and time's certainly not done yet, although I know you, you are counting the time a little bit. Uh, tell me uh, about the history of the grape breeding program here in Arkansas, or I guess specifically there at the university. Well, grape breeding started in 1964, and as I mentioned earlier with the Blackberry story, Dr. James Moore, um, native of Plummerville, uh, began the program. Dr. Moore attained his PhD at Rutgers University, and, and there he saw, again, the ability of a 
fruit breeding or a variety development program can have a huge impact for growers. He wanted to take that magic and that dream back to Arkansas, and grapes are one of the horizons that he felt had promise. Dr. Moore's thought was, why not grow grapes, particularly table grapes, in the eastern United States, instead of having to travel all across the country, hauling them from California. And when we speak of the eastern United States, we're really talking about east of the Rocky Mountains. It's not the Mississippi River, because that's where our continental climate begins, which has things like cold weather and rainfall and some other issues that you don't have the same in California. So Dr. Moore had this dream that he could combine genetics that would allow uh, a grape to be developed that would grow here. Mm-hmm. He focused primarily on table grapes, also a little effort on juice grapes and some on wine grapes began many years ago. So that was the original idea. Dr. Moore knew enough about grapes to know that <clears throat> we had some grapes that were adapted to the eastern U.S. Uh, think of Concord as an example of the species called Vitus labrusca, or mm-hmm. largely Vitus labrusca. And that, that species evolved in the eastern United States, particularly in the northeastern U.S. So it has adaptation more to our cold weather, rainfall, um, and uh, some other aspects, whereas the California grape, which is really the European grape, which is really a Middle Eastern um, evolved grape, it evolved in a desert. And so it has an entirely different um, set of uh, characteristics as far as what it's adapted to. Dr. Moore knew that the eastern grapes needed improvement in a number of areas, particularly quality. Many of the um, Folks in maybe Arkansas, the eastern U.S., older folks know about eating things like Concord or other grapes, which are slip skin. When you put them in your mouth, they kind of move around. The pulp moves around your mouth. you got seeds to deal with and a thick skin. So it's really kind of an outdoor eating experience. Whereas the California grapes you buy in the store are crisp. Uh, there are no skins to chew. They have a different, entirely different texture. So his dream was to try to get the adaptation from the eastern U.S. grapes, and there were varieties that existed primarily from uh, New York State, and combine that with the quality of Vitus vinifera or the European type grape, which is grown in California. So when you cross those two, they readily cross genetic and classical breeding. You can put the texture, seedlessness, and some other aspects from one side with the adaptation from the other side, from the eastern type. Now, when you do the first crosses with that, you don't immediately get a California-type grape that's adapted here. So it takes multiple generations to move those traits. They're fairly complicated traits. And one of the big ones is fruit cracking and rainfall in California, particularly in Delano, California, where most of our table grapes come from, it hasn't rained there probably in several months. If it rained this afternoon two inches, we would probably not have grapes for a while because most of them would split due to uh, that just doesn't work. So putting all these traits together was the dream that Dr. Moore had. And about 10 years, uh, well, 13 years after he started, he reduced, released the first grape called Venus. And Venus released in 1977. It was a slipskin type grape, but it combined a number of flavors in it. And Venus was grown to some extent in Arkansas, particularly in the 80s. There was a number of hundred acres grown of Venus, uh, primarily in White County. And so Venus was one that was grown, and then there have been a number of other varieties that come from that. Reliance is one from 1980s. 1983, Mars in 1985, Saturn 1989, Jupiter and Neptune in 1999, and then Faith, Hope, Joy, and Gratitude came out in 2012, and then more recently, Compassion is our newest variety. Tough challenge to meet because to get everything together, the um, genetics plus the ability to grow with our variable weather, mainly winter cold, diseases and rainfall, is just something that we never were able to achieve coupled with the ability to produce reliably. Mm -hmm. So that's been something that our grapes have been used primarily for local market grapes, uh, on-farm sales, farmers markets, or other marketing like that, not large scale that you would truck across the country or from here to New York City. So that's been our success as far as providing varieties for farmers in Arkansas or in the region. I'm just curious. So I heard, you know, Venus, Mars, 
Jupiter, Saturn, you know, several different uh, compassion, things like this. I've got to ask, you know, how do we name these varieties as they are developed? Is there a system like, uh, you know, is there a system in place that takes us through a, a catalog of or a category of names? I mean, how does that work? Well, Dr. Moore put a lot of thought into the names of varieties. And he, of course, I worked with Dr. Moore from 1980 until he retired at the end of 1996. And, of course, knew him up until his passing and um, a few years ago. So I got most of the stories about how he approached certain things. And many of those same practices I followed. Mm-hmm. He chose uh, planet names for the grapes. So Venus was the first one and then followed by uh, later by Mars, Saturn, Jupiter, Neptune. Reliance is in there. Reliance has a different sort of name because he sent that selection that became Reliance uh, up north to Wisconsin and Ohio, and it worked really well up there, and it got through the winter, <clears throat> and it wasn't really adapted well in Arkansas. And so he named it Reliance because of reliable production where it gets really cold. So there is nice. not, of course, a planet named that. But when we got on to... Um, past uh, Jupiter and uh, Neptune in 1999, I released those, um, we kind of ran out of names. Uh, Mercury is not a, uh, you know, something you'd want to eat. And uh, Pluto, <laughs> Pluto, it didn't seem that appealing. And then I think it was decided it wasn't really a, um, a planet anymore. And then yeah. I thought Uranus would probably have some marketing issues. So I thought we're probably out of planets. So I've, thought about that a while and thought, well, what would be interesting to shift to? And so the what I call the Inspiration Series, released in 2012, Faith, Hope, Joy, and Gratitude, were just four important, um, inspiring words that I thought would be a nice combination. And so that's where that came from. That was just something that I, I, I thought of and dreamed up. And then the later one called Compassion, uh, kind of added to that, what I call Inspiration a series. So sure. that's how those um, varieties got their names. Okay. Fascinating. Uh, well, uh, I agree with the sentiment there on, on running out of planet names. And, and uh, I think that's, I think that's a really interesting sort of side story to our conversation. Now you, you started to talk about in talking about the breeding program, uh, some of the unique successes for the state. Uh, are there any, any grapes, you know, that I, I would call them all stars, <laughs> you know, are there any grapes on the market um, that that fit that bill uniquely? Uh, that would be interesting. Well, I think the ones that have probably been most popular in the state, again, Venus was grown most widely. I don't know of any Venus production right now. Reliance is one that a lot of people bought for their backyard. Uh, Dr. Moore used to refer to Reliance as, as Will Rogers grape because he never met anyone who didn't like it. As you know, somewhat parallel in the Burr Rogers uh, phrase, mm-hmm. I've never met a man I didn't like. And then Mars was also popular because it's a really tough vine as far as more disease resistance at a Concord like flavor. So those were pretty solid. The newer group, um, Jupiter, even though it's 22 years old now, Jupiter has been a, one that really catches people's um, attention because of its flavor. And uh, the others have just had you know, small amounts of production. But again, part of that challenge is, is growing you know, bunch grapes, particularly in our environment. It's been tough. Uh, so that, that, that's really been and hard because you're not going to compete in the grocery store. So those are a few varieties that have had the most attention. The newest one, Compassion, this is my favorite because it has such a unique combination of textures and flavors. Uh, it's one that I would go search out and consume for myself. In fact, I picked all the compassion grapes the other day that we had um, at our research station before uh, before they went bad because I really enjoy that one. Yeah. Okay. So part of what brought us to this conversation today is this conversation behind parents, you know, um, can you, can you tell me a little bit about that concept as far as traits in a breeding program goes? Well, in breeding, classical breeding is what we do, where you transfer in the pollen from one parent to the emasculated flower, female flower of the other parent, and then get the seeds and grow out the children. That's the process, basically. When you do this, you're combining traits that um, we hope will put traits from each parent together, and then the children will have them. So, like maybe improved texture and unique flavors, and no no cracking in the rain, and maybe gets through the winter well. Those would be examples. So, when you do that, you're always combining traits. Most of what 
plant breeders produce, as I said the other day, is trash. Uh, you throw away most everything you make. You go from hundreds of thousands to thousands to dozens to a few that actually get to be products because of this inexact nature of genetics and combination, particularly when there are complex traits like labor or fruit cracking resistance or winter hardiness. So in the program, then thousands of selections made. Those are individual children who were given a number and kept. And so each one of them represents what's thought to be something unique. Now, it could become a variety, but mm -hmm. its better chance is to be a parent for the next generation to pass on some trait. So you tend to build these traits over the years, depending on you know the success that you have, what your goals are, and of course, are you making any progress? Some mm -hmm. traits just simply can't be improved because of limitations of the genes available, or maybe the conditions just won't work for it to grow. So we produce a lot of what we call genetic intermediates that have all sorts of degrees of combination that were called selections. <clears throat> and a lot of these have value in breeding but they don't have value standalone because they have a major deficiency. If you have a vine that's perfect fruit, but it gets killed in our winters, well, that's not going to work in Arkansas. You don't want to release a variety to someone and say, well, yeah, you can plant it, but it's going to die eventually. That's just not suitable, either for a homeowner or a commercial production uh, a farmer. You wouldn't want to do that. So that's a little bit about how these genetic improvements come together. This is almost unending combination of the combination of these traits. Right. Yeah. You're taking me back to a 10th grade biology class a little bit. So. Yeah. It all goes back to simple myosis and recombination of genes. It's all that. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so one, what really shocked me is, and so this is the part where I admit that our conversation today is really probably a little bit selfishly driven because I was so fascinated by this story. But one of the parents um, from this breeding program is what produced a, a, a grape that has probably been in a lot of our refrigerators uh, and kitchens at home, and that is the cotton candy grape. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. You know, that cotton candy story is one of the most unique ones in my career. And uh, would you like to hear how that came about? Oh, my goodness. Yes, please. Okay. Well, as I said, in our program, we have a wide range of selected plants that have traits, but they are not good enough to be a variety. And over the years, a lot of progress made combining unique flavors with improved texture, thinner skins, and seedlessness that we had in our program. But the plant may not be just right to release as a variety, but it serves as a parent. Mm -hmm. So in 2001, an old colleague of mine named Dr. David Kane. Dr. Kane was a native of Maine, got a PhD at Michigan State, once as a peach breeder at Clemson, but he went to California in the mid-80s as a private grape breeder for a major uh, breeding program. And in 2000, he founded a new breeding program called International Fruit Genetics. David came to see me in August of 2001, about 20 years ago, about two weeks ago, and said, you know, I've started this new private breeding effort. I know in Arkansas you have unique plants that have unique flavors, uh, combinations with improved textures, uh, unique shapes, cracking resistance, and a little broader adaptation of the plants. And he says, I would like to figure out some way to access that material. Well, one of the challenges always with university programs is funding the program because it's very expensive to conduct plant breeding and the uh, <clears throat> grape industry table grape industry to support the program. So he said we would pay to access genetics. And um, then if we got something from that, then we'd structure it so there was a royalty paid back to the university for the use of that plant. So the plant that became uh, this cotton candy's parent that gave the flavor, this has a number, we don't have it any longer. And uh, it wasn't going to be a variety because it had some major deficiencies, but that plants uh, was shared with international fruit genetics and dr kane designed a cross between it and a california public variety and cotton candy was a 
was resulted from that. So the flavor that cotton candy has, that cotton candy flavor mm -hmm. came from Arkansas, crossed with a fairly neutral table grape from California. So Dr. McCain made that cross just like we did here, planted out the children and found the one, gave it a number that, um, and it had that flavor. Mm -hmm. I went out to see Dr. Kane a few years later, probably around 2004 or five. I've forgotten what it was. And he showed me the plant that became cotton candy. And I remember distinctly the day we were there. He says, uh, I wanted you to look at this selection here. It had a big, long number. And I tasted it. And I said, wow, that's really good. I said, I'm really impressed that you were able to get that flavor and that texture together because mm -hmm. that's tricky to get that. And he said, mm -hmm. And I remember the day he said, well, I think it has too much flavor. Oh, wow. I said, well, no, David, I think that's really good. He said, no, I think it's too much flavor. I think I'm going to have to cross one more generation to sp split it in half, so to speak. In other words, mm -hmm. take the cotton candy selection, that plant, cross it with something neutral and kind of reduce the flavor. So it was very interesting. I said, well, it's mighty good like it is, but I'm used to eating a lot of high flavored grapes. Mm -hmm. So that's how it came about. Interestingly, one of the um, uh, investors in international fruit genetics is a fellow named Mr. Jack Pandall. Mr. Pandall was a several generation uh, family in the table grape business who owned a company called The Grapery. So The Grapery was his production company and marketing company, but he also had an investment in this private breeding program. So he was able to attain the rights to cotton candy for the United States because of his connection in that organization. So Mr. Pandall, who is a native Californian, took that grape. He said, boy, that does have a lot of flavor. But he put it in his storage, cold storage, and he took it back out the next day and noticed, you know, that flavor is really unique and that texture is really good. And so he says, I think I can make a unique product out of this. But this comes from Californian is used to just the neutral flavors. And so he was able to take that in his company and introduce that in the market. He didn't know it was going to work like it did. Why is it so different? Because most people in our society are used to just plain neutral flavor, as we call it, grapes from the grocery store. So Cotton Candy offered this unique product, okay? And as Mr. Pandall has told me since, flavor is what makes the difference. It's not how big the berries are, it's flavor. flavor. And so that's a really unique thing. That's where Arkansas is important. I've traveled a lot in the world in our various uh, activities in the world and speaking at various conferences and just seeing things. And I've learned that virtually no one in the world knows where Arkansas is. And <laughs> a lot of people can't pronounce it, but it's interesting when they find out something like cotton candy grape you know the flavor was derived from here so that's the story of how that came about how can consumers you know recognize when an arkansas breeding trait is used in a product at the grocery store is there a, is there a way or um do we do we look for the jupiter name or the mars name how, how can we do that well there's no guarantee that you can tell it for sure if you see cotton candy on the label you know that's cotton candy derived from the arkansas parent if you see candy harps or candy dreams you do for instance the grapery mr pandall's company has a product line called gumdrops gumdrops is a series of different varieties with different flavors so earlier he had a variety called candy snaps which has an arkansas parent and then he had uh, Candy Dreams, which is a different Arkansas parent. And then he had Candy Hearts, will come a little later. All of those are under the bag, says Gumdrops, because that's a marketing, a trademark that his company has, but not necessarily putting the name of the variety on there. Mm -hmm. So this can really seem confusing to people. You go to the market now, apples are the best example, and you can see eight different apple oh, varieties. Yeah. You know, which one do I want? And I'll promise you that has caused a lot of consternation in the apple industry, particularly with the marketers. Like, we can't put 13 varieties out there. I know you claim it's the best one, but how are we going to do that? So... So that can be complex for folks. And so I just try to notice, read with a little bit of that fine print. But the simplest thing is if it has a lot of flavor, it's a good chance there's an Arkansas parent behind it. If it's neutral, well, it would be just the standard Vitus vinifera European California grape <laughs> that we're most familiar with. And I don't mean to say that those are not good, but to me, they're pretty boring. It's crunchy. If it's ripe, it's sweet. And the party's over. 
if you bite into it and it's like, huh, this is really an enjoyable sensation. Now that's what makes people happy. And, uh, and it's really great because if we, if we had not been able to make this connection, if I hadn't had that relationship with Dr. Kane, if he didn't know about this technology here from visiting over the years, being from the Eastern United States, I always kid him about that. That's one of the reasons he knew we had things, <laughs> you know, but this never would have happened. And, uh, because, um, most of the time, most of the great breeding programs in the world do not do what we did of combining all these different flavors. So it was really interesting how it happened. And it's like a lot of things when I, back when I used to teach, I teach in value of relationships and um, knowing where people are and what the opportunities are working together. Why is it of so much value? The number one thing is it's created an interesting, enjoyable product for us and people around the world. And then it's always important to kind of come back to the business side of this is that, again, when cotton candy is sold, there's a small little royalty in that that comes back to the University of Arkansas, and that helps pay for fruit breeding that continues to go on now. And that's, in some ways, that's one of the prouder things that I was fortunate to get to work with because sustaining the breeding activity, particularly in Arkansas, where we don't have a large fruit pro breeding industry, fruit industry, you know, that's, um, that's tricky because you have to pay the bills. And so this has turned out to be a unique um pathway for that that i would have never dreamed up alone right yeah no and that's a what a fantastic segue to my final question so we've talked a lot about what I, what we would call bunch grapes or traditional grapes uh, for me a layman here um but i'm just curious you know are there any other grapes types of grapes um that are uh you know, being, being, moving through the program right now, I'm just curious sort of about the future of the program as it may be. Well, one thing I want to touch on before we move on out of bunch grapes is that we have done some wine grape breeding. So okay. in 2016, we released two varieties called enchantment and opportunity. Those that have been in Arkansas a long time can figure out where I got the name opportunity and I named the other one Enchantment just because I like the name. So Enchantment is a, a red, dry red, very high pigmented um, red wine grape. And then Opportunity is a white. And then just in the last year, we released the final two from the program. We're completing that area of work called Dazzle and Indulgence. Dazzle is a, um, a Gewürztraminer. That's a German variety grown in the, uh, the Rhine area or the Alsace region of France, which has an interesting flavor. And then Indulgence has a Muscat flavor. So those are finishing up the bunch grapes, which we're about to finish up. However, uh, a number of years ago, approximately 2006, I wanted to get back around to a, a grape we all know about, and that's muscadine grapes. And I've again, a small effort breeding muscadine grapes have been phasing out over the years, the, the tape, the bunch grape breeding. Muscadine grapes we all know about in Arkansas, they grow across the state except the most northern part. I worked on muscadine grapes and I was a student back in graduate school and back when I was in Mississippi. So I wanted to come back and think, you know, that can be improved just like a lot of other crops that we've worked on. So we begin this breeding program. We don't have any varieties yet, but that's where my colleague, Dr. Margaret Worthington, who has been here five years now working in fruit breeding and will take over all the program um, when I'm uh, finished in 16 months. And she has an enthusiasm that can't be matched for developing improved muscadine grapes. So what do we really mean about improvement? Seedlessness and improved skin and texture. The parts are there genetically to create an entirely different product, which has that unique muscadine flavor. But as I like to say, make it an indoor fruit. So Dr. Worthington again, has the skills and the enthusiasm and the time to put that together. So we always like to think about technology moving forward, products moving forward. We'll continue a, a lot of the work in the program, particularly in, in blackberries, but the muscadine grape program, even though it takes a little time to get these traits together, is going to be really something. And it's exciting to have a young breeder and someone as enthusiastic as Dr. Worthington to take this on 
She's a native of North Carolina. She appreciates yeah. muscadine grapes. As she says, this is the new table grape. So let's awesome. just wait a little while and we're going to have something really unique because the genes are there to make this improvement. And so that breeding magic is there. Some get frustrated about how long it takes, a little patience and a little time. And uh, so that's those are things that on the horizon. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, sounds like a lot of energy uh, coming into the program, just as just as you're leaving it uh, with a lot of energy. And uh, I look forward to talking with Dr. Worthington and, and learning about some of the things that, that uh, she'll be working on as well. So, well, listen, you've been more than generous with your time. Um, I appreciate so much the conversation that we had about the Ponca Blackberry and, and other blackberries here in Arkansas a couple of weeks ago now some of these um varieties and all stars from the great breeding program i can assure you we will talk again before you get out of here in the next uh, year and a half or so but thank you so much for taking the time today to, to chat with me well thanks again for the opportunity it's always good to tell stories about arkansas fruit breeding <laughs> all right dr clark have a great one That's all for another Arkansas AgCast. Thanks for joining us. Come back next Thursday for the latest on Arkansas agriculture.